Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community. Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Pursuit of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. I'm Ryan Buck, Artist Development, New Leonard Media. With me, as always, is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. How hey, are you? Ryan, I'm doing great. It's I'm glad nice to out. hear it. Yeah, you look nice. prepared for the weather. I am. I'm that is tough. enough of that about us. More importantly, today, our guest is Liz Kirkwood, Executive Director for Flow for Love of Water. How are you? I'm Terrific. It's really fantastic to be here. Thank you for being here. So we talked a little bit before rolling. You've done podcasts before. And have you found that over the years, you've just kind of gotten used to a new way of promoting or a new way of exploring, talking about flow? Yes. Although this is the first in-person podcast that I have done since COVID. So that's really exciting. (laughs) And I have to say that it's much more engaging and animated just to be in the same room and just get that energy. Although doing it by Zoom can be really fantastic too. Well, it was a a tool to help us in a way stay connected when it was unsafe to do so. We all, you know, have our gripes about Zoom and stuff, but I think we'll look back and say we're pretty glad it was there. I think so. In an odd way. Maybe you heard it here first. We're (laughs) glad about Zoom. So if somebody asks you maybe out of context, you know, what is the long and the short of what Flow does and what you do? Mm. It might help just kind of to begin with the origin story of Flow. I've been part of the creation from almost the beginning, but Jim Olson is our founder and he's just this legendary Michigan hero who has been a water warrior his entire Water warrior. I like that. Yeah. I heard that a little bit. Yeah. He bears that title and just embodies it because he, well, it's funny. We actually call him H2 Olson. And we had a, you know, a blog. Plus he's a Pisces, you know, so he's fully water sign. Yeah. Destined to be. Totally. Totally. But Jim represented a citizens group called the Michigan Citizens for Water Conservation, representing them against the first time when Nestle came to Michigan to take our water, Mm -hmm. our public water, put it into plastic bottles and sell it back to us and also take it outside of the basin. So the beginning part of Flo's story was this need that citizens and Jim recognized for a nonprofit to be focused on keeping our water public keeping it protected. Mm. Seems so basic. What do you mean? Why do you have to keep your water public? It is, it's there, it's free, it's out there. But in the early 2000s with Nestle coming to Michigan, coming to an economically depressed area saying, hey, we're here, we're just going to take some of this water. It's not a big deal. And we're going to bring all this money to your town. It really represented the kind of unfolding in the beginning of the commodification of our yeah, water. Right. And it has been marching at this pace that we haven't really even understood. And what I mean by that is in my short lifetime, we never had bottled water at a sporting events. Right, that right. was not a thing. We had the hose. 
Yeah, exactly. The hose. We were lucky go, for that. go out there and go to the hose. But now we wouldn't say that because of the lead and all that other stuff. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but people now just expect it. And right. in 2016, bottled water outpaced the sale of soda, and yeah. it just all of a sudden became this thing. Yeah. Whereas water law and policies are really informed about where water is. Right. Keep the water in the watershed. Right. And. We all have a right to reasonable use, and that makes sense because if you're a farmer in this watershed, if you use the water, that water is going to recharge in the groundwater right. and recycle. Right underneath kind of the surface, there the commodification has been happening, privatization of water, but also a new threat, which is financialization of water. And so we are seeing water markets from Wall Street, private equity firms are coming in. In fact, Blue Triton purchased Nestle, as you know. And so now how do we have shareholders being accountable with these companies? And the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for the first time ever put water future contracts out there starting in December of 2020. And that is a game changer because that literally is saying our water's for sale. Do you find that things like that are helpful to your cause? Because, you know, in general, Wall Street is seen as is negative to those who, you know, maybe have been impacted that way. Could that be seen as a positive and help your message? I hope so. I hope it can be this harbinger for people to recognize what the future holds for right. water because it is the most precious resource. Water is right. life. It is foundational for all creatures on this planet. And we are doing, you know, just uh, a bang up job of, of creating greater scarcity with the pollution and the competition. And, you know, climate change, of course, is exacerbating its availability. So when you look at the, there's a lot of the people involved, there's marketing involved when you have something like you say privatization and you say things like monetization of water Again, do you find that the information that's out there regarding this is typically good? Where's a good place to find the real info? And you may hear me ask this a couple of times because there's so much out there. Yeah. And so I think people need to know from you regarding this specifically, what's a good resource? Well, the UN actually just came out with a really terrific report that summarized and really kind of broke down the difference between water as commodity water as a private trust and then water as a financial market. And yeah. that is just kind of beginning this conversation. But I think for most people, they don't think about this issue. And we need really great storytellers to communicate and break down why this is a threat. So a couple things. Why is it a problem if our water is privatized. Well, there is a huge literature of evidence to show, for example, when private companies buy public water municipally mm -hmm. owned, both drinking and sewer systems, that the rates go up. You know, Food and Water Watch has done terrific work right. on this. Typically, it goes up 60 plus percent compared to the municipal water rates. Same thing for sewer rates, super high. There is less accountability and the quality of the water 
often goes down. Sure. Now, you know, not always, but in general, these are the, the patterns that happen when private companies take over water systems. Right. Can there be cases where you have a municipal government that contracts with a private party? Yeah. And, you know, Traverse City does that. But remember, it's the municipal government that owns the water system. And so if and when there are problems, the public can hold the government That's accountable. Yeah. yeah. And so that piece is super important. Right. And that's all I'll say about that. And, and I, because <laughs> we can go on and on. And I hope it's enough again to stir people to look in the right places and maybe take it to that absurdist conclusion, right? So, has the last year and a half in any way been positive, or what's what's gone on with the state of our water currently? Well, the pandemic has absolutely laid bare kind of the inequities to access to water. We have seen the structural inequalities, particularly in communities of color across this country. Again, another really amazing piece of work that scientists at uh, Cornell and Water Watch just recently put together. There were 34 states in this country that put moratoriums on water shutoffs. And that alone saved lives. That public policy was so tremendously important because, remember, wash your hands. Three words the CDC said, remember back? I mean, gosh, I don't even want to remember back in 2020. It was like 78 years ago. Yeah, it does. Okay, 78 years ago um, in 2020. (laughs) But remember, access to water is everything. And so what I wanted to say about the pandemic and water is that we have, I think, really exposed the vital importance it is for Mm. everyone in this country to have access to safe, affordable water. And we know there in the public's mind, water and public health is being connected, Mm -hmm. which is a really important connection that has been much more attenuated. Right, right. The urge for this pursuit, and I find this really fascinating about you, seems to have stemmed a long time ago, even before college. So how important was your 30-day trekking adventure in the Absaroka Beartooth Wilderness in Wyoming at age 15? How important was that journey? Life-changing. Yeah, that was a really incredible time. And actually, I recently reached out to my aunt who lives in Montana, who I would visit during those summer trips in Wyoming and Montana. And you know, as a kid from New York City, from Brooklyn, just having that experience to be completely dependent on yourself, just that reliance and the humbling experience of being in wilderness and knowing that nature is wild and awesome and doesn't really care if you live or you die, it, it's just raw yeah. and it's so powerful and yeah. extraordinary. And to spend time and contemplate, how did this lake get here? There were glaciers and there were these kettled lakes and it was Is it true that on one of these trips you spent 24 hours alone just absorbing like philosophical conservationalist literature? Yes. Yep. That's that's part of the. Uh, do you have to do that? That to, was like, part Mom, of it. Like mom, dad, 
Can we skip it this time? <laughs> well, mom and dad were not there. That would no. This was uh, just with other fifteen-year-olds and wow. some leaders. So, wow. Yeah. And that kind of set the tone. And you've been quoted as saying, "In wilderness, I grew up." What do you mean by "in wilderness, I grew up"? I think I wrote that because it was the moment for me where. I knew what I wanted to do. I wasn't rudderless anymore. I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to conservation and protecting the natural world. But I had no idea how that journey would unfold. And I think about the indigenous connections that I have had, especially here in Michigan. Mm -hmm. When I was in Arizona, I did work with the Tohono O'odham and other tribes But, you know, Michigan has this incredible indigenous culture. I mean, there are 12 tribes, you know. Amazing things. The original stewards of natural resources. Exactly. So you mentioned this a little bit. Is it true that your mom was the one who encouraged you to have adventures in Brooklyn? (laughs) Where did you adventure in Brooklyn that led you towards, you know, the ecological pursuits? Well, she wanted me to have adventures and kicked me out of Brooklyn. To be exact. Uh, So this was really go have adventures. Oh, yeah. she That's her spirit. That's how she is. She would say, what about this idea? How about about this? How about that? You know, it's wonderful to have somebody in your life who has that sense of adventure and and encourages you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we jump forward. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this particular topic, but there's a lot out there on it. What's the current status aligned? Five. I think the last thing I read was the clock is ticking. Yes. So is there anything that you can share right now? Yeah. So November 13th marks the year anniversary when Governor Whitmer and the Department of Natural Resources revoked and terminated the 1953 easement, which is the legal instrument that granted permission to Enbridge, formerly Lakehead Pipeline Company, to locate these pipelines in the open waters of the Great Lakes. We know now that nobody would ever allow a pipeline like this to exist. Right. And that was said, you know, during the former Republican administration and, and attorney general and the rest. So in the past year, I'll try to summarize this quickly. It has been this dance between state court and federal court. So the state of Michigan filed and asserted their public trust claims in Ingham County and state court. And then Enbridge immediately filed the case in federal court and um, trying to remove it to federal court, asserting that there was federal jurisdiction. And essentially, you can't go to federal court unless there are federal claims. So Enbridge has been alleging federal defenses, saying, oh, actually, they're pointing to the federal pipeline agency called FEMSA, saying, oh, that they're actually in charge and not the state. Well, that's not what's going on. Because in fact, remember, the state is the owner and the sovereign protector of public trust bottomlands and waters. And so they can both grant an easement to allow a private company to use the waters, Mm -hmm. but they can also revoke it. 
and think about the absurdity. If you can grant something, you can certainly take it away. You know, it's right. like you are the fairy godmother. Like your parents, but you know, I yeah. <laughs> brought you in this world and I gave you that. And <laughs> well, I was thinking about it in the, as a fairy godmother. I, oh, I'm oh, granting yeah. you a wish. Now right. I'm taking it back. Right. right. So. Maybe that's not very good. Maybe. No, it makes sense. And, and to put all of the intricacies of it into a digestible way, you know, I didn't know what you may say when I asked about it, because it's certainly a large portion of what flow is all about. And that's all about protection. And it's all about securing our Great Lakes, which I appreciate you talking to us on because, you know, it seems like you'll hear about it and you don't hear about it. You hear about it and you don't hear about Mm -hmm. it. And again, we urge people to find the best resources they can Mm -hmm. to get the best information that they can. Looking at your role as executive director, you have a lot of responsibilities. From a fundraising standpoint, organizational standpoint, is there a certain element of your role that's more critical than another right now? Oh, well, I am tasked with all of it. (laughs) Yeah, that's where I was going. Is anything, is it just kind of all things at once or are there certain periods of time where we're in this mode, we're in this mode? Mm. I think it used to be a little bit more of different modes and a little more ebb and flow. Winters used to be a little bit slower up here. Now I don't think they are. Interesting. Is there a Um, reason for that? Hmm. I don't know exactly how to pinpoint it. It just felt like there were more seasonal rhythms. And I feel like we here in Traverse City in Northern Michigan are all of a sudden sort of being pulled into kind of the national just pressure cooker kind of culture. Right. Which is not good. You know, I think it's really important to find that better balance. But I think with any nonprofit management, it's the laser focus on the mission, right? That is the number one priority. So it's ensuring that all of the programming, you know, and for us, it's line five, it's working on groundwater, it's working on water infrastructure, it's addressing all these other issues that come up like permits for aquaculture pens and you name it. So just focusing on that. And then all of the fundraising is really, really critical. There are um, amazing foundations who really understand the work that we do. And to that very point, all of our work is so, you know, concentric circles with all of these partners. Because, for example, with Line 5, we are just one piece of this huge puzzle and the collaborations that we have with other both environmental legal policy shops, but also tribal and legal representation is extraordinary. And nurturing all of those relationships and being a good partner is deeply ingrained in our philosophy. And not just in a community as small as ours, because we are small, but I think your particular pursuits warrant a nice circle and positivity radiating out, which makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You talk about these different elements of your roles. And I really, on this podcast, love meeting individuals like yourself who are doing things that may be a tougher path, specifically nonprofits. So Mm -hmm. I like to maybe see where you can share some skills and things that you've attained and share some knowledge, something that you have to do. And in looking at flow and preparing for today, you know, you're on TV a lot. You're, you have to be a spokesperson for flow, which can sometimes be difficult 
because you're talking about pretty heady and weighty issues. So was there anything along the way that prepared you for that part of the job, to be the face, to be the, you know, it, well, <laughs> it's go over there as the executive director. Is there anything that prepared you specifically for that? No, I just was sort of thrown to the wolves, right. really, honestly, to, <laughs> to kind of, you know, learning on the job how to do that, learning how to connect with people about what you do. So, for example, spending time, what is your elevator speech? You know, I remember in the early days, what is the elevator speech? You know, okay, <laughs> let's try this out. And you fall on your face a lot. People are just, their eyes glazed over and they're out of the elevator and you're still talking. You can't, re with clean water, <laughs> you can't get them immediately with those two words. Well, you or know. imagine life without water. <laughs> there you go. I wish I, uh, you had been with me. No, I, it's, I think um, sometimes as a lawyer, you're kind of like overthinking some things and just not just right. communicating. Well, you, know, you opened a door because you got your BA in history and environmental studies, which I think is interesting from Williams College, and a JD in environmental law from Lewis and Clark. And after your epic sojourns at 15, it's your grandfather, who's also a Yale graduate, who urged you the, to the path of law? Yeah, That's he true. did. He did. He was an amazing guy. He was also a, a cross-country runner, and my daughter's a cross-country runner, so I been thinking about him a lot recently because uh, it's the end of the season. Yeah. My my grandpa always said, you know, you should go to law school. It's interesting because he very much was in the kind of male world of law. Right. Let's face it, I never asked him how many women were in his <laughs> Yale law school class, but I don't right. think it was I'm sure it can be looked two, up and yeah, probably days of the one, internet. maybe two women. If that, yeah. if that. But he just always saw it as kind of a noble profession as something where you would really use your critical thinking and writing. And he knew that I love to write and it just seemed like a really natural fit. Right. And I remember he was so thrilled when I went to law school and my grandmother actually passed away right before I graduated, but he came out to Oregon and wow. yeah, it was a Really great, great weekend to spend together. That's incredible. A lot of yeah. positive influences from family along yes. the way. Yeah, and absolutely. writing. So everybody, listen, writing's important. So yes. a lot of writing mm -hmm. as it relates to being a lawyer. So mm -hmm. movies and TV are correct. There's a lot of writing and papers there shifting around here. It's a there. lot of writing. That and and, and <laughs> absolutely good to know because in, in your grandfather saying it was a noble profession because early on in your law career you were quoted as saying you were looking to work with clients that you could be ethically proud of, mm -hmm. which seems like the road less traveled because mm -hmm. the clients that maybe were less so were probably the bigger paydays. Yeah. Did that occur to you at all? Or did that, that maybe starting from your mom and your grandfather instill something noble in you? Yeah. I mean, it was never about the money for me. When I meet students who go into law because they want to make money. I think, gosh, there are a lot easier ways to make money than being a lawyer. Or I think, why are you in law school? You know, to, if they don't know the exact area, that's fine. Right. But I think with any kind of graduate program, you hope that you have some kind of direction or something that you're interested in. And right. you, by no means do you have to know kind of, nobody knows that's the case. exactly. But, you know, it's a big financial commitment. 
it's a big commitment, period. But you know one thing that's really ironic is that my grandfather didn't tell me that most lawyers were actually, I think, sort of part of the most unhappy lot of professions. I think Okay, there was a statistic at a I, time. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think and accountants. <laughs> yeah. Lawyers, yeah. I would yeah. think that nurse who has to give babies a shot has to be number one, you followed so? by lawyers for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> but well, bottom line, I think whatever you do, you want to make sure that it's something that you love because you have to do this work for the yeah. rest of your life. And you want to be proud of what you do. You want to wake up every day and say Hey, I got things to do, and this is going to be a good day. Yeah. But I think there are a lot of professions that don't afford that, you know? Right. So, but yeah, I think the long and the short of it is one summer I worked for the Attorney General's office in the state of Washington in Olympia, and I loved working for the AG's office. They were just working on the most interesting cases. Really? And yeah, water law and Indian law. And I, I knew I was going to have a real hard time in private practice because of, I think, representing a lot of the private interests is, is more challenging. Well, in just terms, like your client is the water sure. versus, you know, right. whatever you name the company and they have leaky underground storage tanks and you have to help them clean it up. Okay, well, but here's yeah. another surprise that I thought I wanted to do the compliance work. I thought, okay, well, I'll help the company, you know, comply, make okay. sure they're not. So pretty noble. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, that didn't, it was, it was okay. But I actually like doing the litigation much more. And I was lucky enough to work at a really wonderful boutique law firm in San Francisco, Varela, Braun, and Martel. And we represented the University of California against Enron in the most well, unbelievable. Talk about bearing the lead. Wow. <laughs> That's a pretty nice uh, little, wow. Yeah, it was. Okay. I mean, and this was the period, this is, you know, 21 years ago when uh, California deregulated the energy market. Yeah. So Enron decided, oh, well, you know, we're just going to breach the contract with all of the 45 different universities. And you know what? It's better if you can just buy it on the market for, you know, double what you know we have and so universities That's a pretty Calif good way to explain that to the layperson actually yeah <laughs> one of the better versions i've heard well but remember i mean the universities of california they've got hospitals and all of a sudden yeah. we are filing you know an injunction because all of the people in the hospital won't have any electricity and it's life wow. or death kind of issue so we got that injunction and Enron had to comply. And yeah. then by the time I went up to the Ninth Circuit, the contract had ended and the universities had to, you know, make new plans. Oh, my goodness. But it was really exciting representing sure. the universities. So did you know you were in the, involved in something kind of big at the time? Yes. That case, I knew. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was I always wonder that about those kind of situations in a law office and something comes along that may seem innocuous, but then mm -hmm. it's like, wait a second. Yeah. This has implications in yeah. who's to tell, maybe, if well, you're in it, you know. The other thing that was really wild is that this amazing woman who I went to Williams with, Bethany McLean, was the reporter who broke the story about Enron. And I don't know if you ever saw that movie, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Uh -huh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you'll see Bethany in that. She's she's amazing. Wow. Yeah. 
Did you you didn't make it in the documentary? You know, the, no, I'm not. Not even not you know, featured. One of those, nope. Oh, that's nope. a bummer. No. It's- <laughs> <laughs> From the Flow website, and I thought this was really, this is really powerful. It says the Great Lakes are globally unique. They're a magnificent natural resource endowment existing nowhere else on Earth. Now that's not a hyperbolic statement. No. Can you elaborate on that just a tad? Yeah. I, I, it's it's beautiful to read and and to even say, but yeah. When I think about their global significance, I think about the fact that you can see the Great Lakes from space. It shows how vast and extraordinary they are. Yeah. And you can't see any boundaries between Canada and the U.S. And they are the really, you know, part of the lifeblood of North America. Right. Be seen from space. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, just hearing you say that, mm-hmm. it just reminded me yeah. of how incredible it is. Because it could just be people visiting the area for the first time mm-hmm. and just understanding the expanse and the vastness this amazing water. When you think about that, you look at 20% of the planet's fresh water are accounted for by the Great Lakes. And, and the website for loveofwater.com is great for resources and statistics. So when you're looking at the information that you want to present, how do you kind of prioritize what you're showing and what you want people to be seeing, you know, like right now? What's important for people to be looking at? Mm. Well, homepage, I try to have it there. And and this is too mechanical an answer I'm giving you about. No, that's okay. <laughs> because we need a website redesign. Yeah, it wasn't in an attempt to, to maybe knock the, the yeah. I was just, you know, when you think about all the facts, yes. I'm just trying to help people kind of maybe scramble through some noise and say, mm-hmm. you know, what should we be looking at? What are the statistics? What are the facts that we should be looking at? About the Great Lakes. Yeah. Well, I think our programming helps to really inform a lot of the kind of extraordinary facts to bring people in and then also deliberates and really articulates a lot of the threats to, you know, I'm thinking about groundwater, for Mm -hmm. example. And then also the most important part of bringing people to take action, to feel inspired, to feel part of the solution because... The protection of our waters requires everybody, and everybody is part of the solution. But I want to say it's not just also about the facts and the figures, right? The facts and the figures can bring the sense of awe, but it's the stories and the connections that we all personally have with the lakes. One of my favorite questions kind of as an icebreaker for different webinars and things that we've done or workshops is just asking people, where's their favorite body of water? I mean, you can hear people animated there. Oh, this, you know, and I know that person either grew up there or their cousin brought them to this place or, you know. There's a positive connection. It could be family. It could be friends. Exactly. You associate a certain smell with that summer or a certain song with that summer. Right. Which is is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And there's a statement out there that I think is really a fascinating statement because you don't know what people's catalysts for change are going to be, especially as it relates to water. So we've been kind of touching on the things and hopefully mm-hmm. we're guiding people into the right places. But clean water is a basic human right. Yes. 
What's interesting about that is if you really think about it, it seems, yeah, absolutely. From the beginning, that should have been the first thing in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, anywhere. Right. Absolutely. Clean water. Yes. But not mentioned in either of those documents and recently recognized by the U.N. in 2010. Yes. Is that correct? That is correct. So But I'll add some more. but But there's hope. New York just passed a constitutional amendment that recognized oh, amazing. Yeah, okay. the human right to water, Pennsylvania, Virginia, right. and California. And, and I asked about that because that was staggering to me mm-hmm. that, it, and at least as a UN resolution, it, it does hopefully is as all-encompassing as possible. Mm-hmm. But when I read 2010, I was shocked, appalled. Yes. If I was on a stool, I would have fallen off of it for sure. And maybe do you think that there's still any kind of apathy towards people who do not have access? Do you think maybe even something like what happened in Flint was an awakening to people saying, wait, we still can have water problems in this day and age? You know, is there still education that needs to be done on this principle? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just also want to give a shout out to Maude Barlow, who is a Canadian water warrior who was just instrumental in the UN's passage of water's human right. And well, she and Jim Olson are up there as kind of huge heroes of mine. Absolutely. I mean, education is part and parcel of it. And I think one of our largest obstacles, especially living in the Great Lakes region, is the abundance of water leads us to just take it for granted. Right. But we don't want to be in the position that our water is poisoned before we actually start fighting for it. The urgency is right here. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's maybe it's even beyond back urgent, there, right? And it's yeah. You know. And then to think about Flint and now Benton Harbor, these are water-led crises in communities of color that never, ever, ever should have happened. Right. Newark, New Jersey. I mean, this, it goes on and on and on. And these examples are being lifted up, you know, especially Flint as the poster child and warning for Americans to say, hey, we need to reinvest in our water infrastructure. And, you know, fortunately, with the passage of the Infrastructure Investment Act, we can hopefully turn a new leaf and engage like we need to. Looking back, you've had 10 years, you've had a lot of success, you prioritized things earlier. And I read that when you talk about all that you do, you like to celebrate and learn from success. But on the other side, you said defeat hurts. And that really stood out to me because a lot of people put that in different ways or they kind of, oh, we learn from defeat. You said defeat hurts. And I think it was likened to the Nestle case wherein despite overwhelming evidence, public support against, they still triumphed. So is there a lesson to be learned there? Is there too big to fail, too big to fight? How do you stay positive amongst that? Well, I think I wrote that kind of maybe more in the moment, right? Because there are moments where you can't always get what you want. And I think just the hyper-partisan nature of our country right now has really divided us and kind of kept us from focusing on things that we can do together that we all want. But I think that it's like 
that quote, the arc, the, I'm not going to get this quote. <laughs> That's okay. The MLK, here, let me, uh, I'll get it. The I, arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yes. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Right. I don't know if even I practiced that all day, would I just be able to naturally roll that out in conversation? So I empathize. It's a tough one. We we talked about your training as a lawyer and being having poise and being a spokesperson. And another part of your role that I find very fascinating about is I'd say I wanted to find a way to put this advocacy in the field, Mm -hmm. which is maybe a lighter way of saying protesting or marching. Because, you know, these are things that you have to do. You have to be visible. And Mm -hmm. you said that at times you've dragged your kids to marches to get them involved. And in the videos that I've seen with actions that you're trying to make a statement, not just with Flow, but other organizations, Mm -hmm. is these are are positive experiences and they are family experiences and they're teaching. So how do you balance what you go to and what, like, do you have to maintain street cred by going to... You know, a, a bunch of different things a year, or how do you plan what to do and how to attend? Well, I wish I could plan better, but there are these inflection points for the different programs and campaigns. And so, for example, with line five, which I realize I haven't done, I, I need to summarize what happened there. But when we had the eviction event on May 13th, when Enbridge defied, Governor Whitmer's order to shut down Line 5, Mm -hmm. that was a really pivotal time and moment for us to support the tribes who were really leading that entire day. And so that's just an example. Oh, I'm there. And this time I wasn't speaking. So that was wonderful where I just got to just be there. Right. So what I'm pointing to is that there are times where you lead you're out front and other yeah. times you follow and support and finding that balance is, yeah. is really, really great. We try to respond to as many kind of presentations and engagements as we can. So tomorrow I'm going to go talk to the high school student environmental oh, advocacy that's club. Great. That's really important. I've been thinking a lot about students and really thinking about hope. What gives us hope? Yeah. What gives this generation hope? to change the world, to put us on this critical pathway to address climate change that is existential. And I keep thinking it's about doing, it's about acting and taking action and being engaged, being informed. And we don't all know the solutions, but we are better together. Yeah. You... You've done something as well, and I think engaging the young now, it's it's probably one of the best things to be done because the younger generation seem very aware. Love or hate social media, it is broadcasting some truths out there and, and some things that people are maybe being awoken to in a way. They still have to muddle through everything, but they seem very aware and wanting to protect their resources. I don't remember yes. as much information growing up mm-hmm. and really just taken for granted the tap water at my sink mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. how many sinks in my house? Yeah. <laughs> Probably eight. I don't know. I'm not bragging. But, you know, <laughs> it, the, the thought of it not being there. You have a big house. Is, 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 <laughs> <laughs> eight, eight sinks. 
You're going to have to look at that. It, that was too much. It okay. may have been too much. I'm okay. misremembering. I'm sorry. I'm taking you off track. But no, no, that's, well, going on a memory lane journey about sinks growing up. They were pink and green back in the day, and you don't see those anymore. But I know what you're talking about. That part of it is is absolutely real. And another thing that you've done, and I think you're a driver of this at Flow, is engaging the artist community. And mm-hmm. you've done several events where you're celebrating authors and you're bringing that community together. Is there mm-hmm. a certain advantage of engaging the artist community in your cause? Yes. Yes. For us, the Art Meets Water Initiative is all about engaging the the heart and the mind towards the action, the individual and then collective action that is necessary. I mean, we've got this incredibly narrow window to really transform what we're doing. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel this urgency. You know, this is this 10-year decade where I feel like this is the most important decade of my life right now, really, just in terms of the changes that we need to make. And we talked about this before, about what motivates people to take action is their connection to water, to their community. And we have found that Artists really inspire people at a different level than the policy. I feel like water is a huge inspiration to a lot of artists across all scopes, not just painting, but music. Yeah. And so that's a good way to also reach maybe a different audience Mm -hmm. uh, through that collaboration and that positivity. Yeah, totally. Are there any other artist-focused events? Do you have anything like that that you can talk about at all? We wouldn't hold you to them, but do you have other plans of things like that moving forward, or is this a slower time for things like that? Well, I was just thinking, you know, we've had a number of author events recently with like Lynn Heasley and Allison Swan, so poets mm-hmm. and writers. Dave Dempsey, who is our senior policy advisor, is coming out with a new book, Great Lakes for Sale. He will be having conversation with Sally Colmish, who is another fabulous writer. We are really, really interested in engaging younger artists, poets, writers, musicians, because, again, we believe that the leadership and ideas need to come from this next generation that really carries a heavy mantle. It does. Yeah. Well, I was looking through the presentation for your 2021 Confluence Celebration. Really, really well done and a lot to celebrate. It was hosted by Ben Whiting, which mm-hmm. is kind of neat. He was a guest on our podcast. Oh, awesome. And so, again, it, it's clear that you spent a lot of time on it, and mm-hmm. it's just really, really well done. But a lot of the things that came out of that and a lot of people, when talking about flow, are saying small but effective and powerful. You've added mighty and nimble. <laughs> yep. Is that still hold true? Is that enough? Or do you need to add new adjectives? Where What what's, what needs to be happening and focusing moving forward mm-hmm. as you're going into, you know, the next, the next phase? The next 10 years, yeah. Well, I hope that we can still be mighty and nimble. And I hope that we're always thinking about the big picture, about those larger stewardship issues. It's that tension of, of looking kind of short, medium, and Mm long-term. 
And to do that work, we need more storytelling, more communications, and campaigns where we're really just kind of locked in arms with other allies who can help us cross the finish line. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be continued collaborations with allies who maybe haven't been yeah. as close as we would hope. So, for example, I'm just thinking about with this new infrastructure funding, the natural affinities with labor and jobs and public health and environmental protection mm -hmm. is extraordinary. Yeah. And it's my hope that we can really be working in better alignment together. Because sure. one of the things I think about a lot is how water is what unites us. When you look at polls, it doesn't matter what aisle you're on, you know, political aisle. It's everybody, everybody wants clean water, clean air for themselves right. and for their children. So there should be no challenges at all, right? Exactly. It should just be, here it is. Let's approve it. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that does so not. far. But that does give me hope that we can find consensus. On the infrastructure bill, people from different sides of the aisle decided to vote for the package because it's about clean water, right? Anything to unite both sides of the aisle. Exactly. That's incredible. Yeah. When you look at how people digest information, it's maybe a sad but true reality. Movies and television, right? Everybody. So if it's digestible in a movie. So there's tons of movies about water, which is kind of interesting. As a movie person, you've got Chinatown, Sahara, mm -hmm. Aaron Brockovich. What's the other one? Uh, a Civil Action with mm -hmm. John Travolta. Is there a particular film or even documentary that you enjoy about your topic of work about water uh, or anything that you like to point people to when they say, I'm not getting it, eyes glaze over, you can be like, have you seen this? <laughs> well, I like a lot of those films that you just mentioned. Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Chinatown is one of the classic ones. And one of the most interesting last lines in a movie ever, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. Like, okay. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I don't know what that means. It's always perplexing. But yes. at the heart of that film, it's a water story. You're right. And when you really start to think about it, even on the surface in a, in a, as a treatment, wow, how can the story about water be interesting? But it is. But I was just curious as to your take on that, because in your tool of, of things to say, and this is what I do for flow, mm -hmm. hey, watch this movie. So any of those are good, I guess. Well, um, Actually, one that isn't just water-centric, it's called Kiss the Ground. Oh, okay. That is a really amazing movie with Woody Harrelson. And it's really about regenerative agriculture and water and climate change and how it's protecting the entire water cycle. I've not seen that. You haven't? That sounds it's, tremendous. It's really okay. fantastic. Then this other movie... It was called, I think it's called Even the Rain. Even and the Rain, okay. there was this other movie, I think it, this might be wrong, but I think it's called Water and Power, A California Heist. Oh, perfect. And it's all about the, the pomegranate, the wonderful company and the, oh. the 
those the water rights. Juices. Yes. Oh, the, so this is a documentary. Orchard. Yes. Is it salacious with the details? Yeah. Oh, that sounds trend. That water, sounds tremendous. Water and power, a California heist. That's it. Yeah. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about interesting unofficial titles here and there, Water Warrior. But in 2019, you were called the Great Lakes Guardian. <laughs> And having talked to you, I'm like, yes, I, I see wings behind you. How does that sit with you? Do you like that? It's a little too much. It's too much. It's not your personality. You don't like that. Because, again, you're obviously very humble about the things that you've, you've done, but you've done amazing things and the organization has. And maybe some of that stuff you recognize as being useful as a PR bit, but it's still a you out there, right? Yeah. And I that, mean, but you're okay with it? It's not too uncomfortable? And I mean... It's very nice. I think about my fellow water warriors, and we kind of like that that title, you know. Although it's interesting, somebody was recently talking to me about how kind of angry or kind of violent our language is, just about the just the words, like mm-hmm. you're killing it, you're crushing it, you're all those kind of things, which is supposed to be really positive. But I think the alliteration of water warrior, I, I still like it. It's, oh, it is. It's good. It is good. It is good. <laughs> So looking back, it's 1994. You're in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Nobody's hiring. Nobody's hiring. PhDs are being reduced to the humiliating task of volunteer work and what have you. 1994, it's still a good year, I guess. Pulp Fiction came out that year. So the world got to introduce themselves to Quentin Tarantino. But still, there you are. <laughs> Would you, even given a second thought, had envision yourself in a small place like Traverse City doing what you're doing? No. No? <laughs> no. I never even been to Michigan. Yeah, I I had no idea. I had no idea where this journey would take me. When I was in Washington, D.C., I thought, oh, I've got to get my dream job. I'm not going to go to Wall Street. I'm not going to do Arthur Anderson, all that kind of consulting stuff, all these other people I yeah. knew were doing. But it was impossible. I couldn't work at World Wildlife Fund or EDF or any of these groups. And I finally got a job at the Environmental Law Institute. And I thought, you know, I might end up going to law school. And then if I were stuck here, I mean, that would just not be that exciting. And then I had this opportunity to move out to Arizona and go on this wild ride. I mean, I didn't know anybody in Arizona. And that experience was really wonderful for me because it was this opportunity to live in the Rocky Mountain West and to witness this huge demographic growth and really to see right on the front lines about the conflict between local communities grappling with protecting their amazing resources like Moab, Utah, or, you know, Red Lodge, Montana, and figuring out, well, what is economic growth going to look like? How do ranchers continue their way of life? And what kind of financial instruments can you think about to, you know, pass down the tradition? So we wrote a whole book about conservation easements and different ways to help ranchers Mm -hmm. and farmers. But that experience was really I think it was wonderful because it wasn't just about policy. It was really about connecting with people and understanding how important partnerships 
are, you know, with the National Park Service or Bureau of Land Management and finding compromise because it's... Um, always has been and always will be. A, exactly. One of the toughest things to do is yeah. finding compromise. But exactly. little by little, you have to try to make it happen. Right. How can somebody support flow? What's the best way to support the organization all the ways? How can people help? Oh, there's so many ways. We love volunteers. We have, even in this kind of hybrid world, we have a, a great need for volunteers. And when I say volunteers, it's um, it's everything from helping design events to, you know, you might be an economist or you might be a hydrologist or... Any skill level yeah, is uh, welcome. I'm, Good. Yeah. I mean, we welcome engineers or lawyers or students. I, I mean communicators um yeah so there's is the that. best way to find out about those opportunities on the website on the website we also need support to do the work individual supporters really power our work so that we can be nimble so that we can mm -hmm. respond and think about kind of the long-term future for water policy here in the great lakes yeah. and donations yes is that okay too? Yeah, donations are okay. okay. We've got a donate button right Through on the, the website as well. Yeah. For loveofwater.org. Yeah. Is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners that maybe we didn't touch? And I'll be honest, if you would come back, that'd be amazing because I didn't get to like most of what I wanted to talk to you about because there's so much. Yeah. Uh, and can... you've been so gracious with your time. But is there anything that you'd at this point like to share with the listeners before we go? Oh, my goodness. Well, you've been incredible as a host and, and so generous with your time. Oh, and I don't know. It's my so, pleasure. No, you, you really have been. Well, let's see. What do I want to say? Really just, you know, let's enjoy these lakes, but let's really buckle down and figure out how we're going to protect them because these are extraordinary, extraordinary waters and these are extraordinary times. And... It is the collective work and the collective passion that will change the world. Yeah, absolutely. Truer words, never spoken. Forloveofwater.org is the website. Encourage volunteering, encourage donating, encourage helping in any way you can. And for any artists out there who want to get in touch with you through the website as well, if they're yes. interested in what you have in that realm as well. Yeah. Liz, thank you so much for your pursuits and for all those who pursue along with you, keeping our Great Lakes safe and secure, hopefully forever. Thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for listening and thank you for pursuing the positive. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us again on the Pursuit of Podcast, the Pursuit of Flow. For Love of Water, forloveofwater.org. Liz Kirkwood, one more time, thank you so much for joining us. Also want to give a big shout out to our supporters at the Tin Lid Hat Company, tinlidco.com. Use promo code The Pursuit of for 40% off to our listeners. And for general podcasting, audio, video, inquiries. Check us out at newleonard.com.